You're listening to the Grace Covenant Statesville Audio Podcast. How many of you have ever gone skydiving? <laughs> A few of you. How many of you, it's on your bucket list? Okay, a few of us, someday I want to get this done. You know, I, I just have, I've never understood why anyone would want to jump out a perfectly good plane. <laughs> you know, it's working well, everything's functioning, why leave it? It's, it's, I just don't get it. Um, well, in case you missed it, you didn't catch it, that we've, we're actually starting today a sermon series we've called Radical. Um, now, now, we had an extended conversation about what to name the series. And, and part of it is because the term radical, there's some baggage that comes with it. Um, one is that it's just a very broad term. It means a lot. In fact, if you look up the word radical in the dictionary, one of the online dictionaries had 35 different uses for the term. Okay, so, and so that a radical, we find radicals in science. Uh, there are two, a group of two or more atoms in a chemical reaction, and there's some other things that happen within that reaction. But basically, within chemistry, we find radicals. We find radicals in mathematics. We even find radicals in linguistics. We find radicals in um, um, surgical procedures. We find radical being used as slang. Wow, that's rad, man, or that's radical, or what they actually mean that's good or excellent is what they're trying to say. And pretty much all uses, um, broadly speaking, what, what they're trying to say is that radical, it's far from the usual or customary. And in some, um, it may be even extreme or drastic. So it's, it's pretty much out there is what they're trying to convey. But that's just one of the challenges we had with the term. It's just that it's just a very broad usage. Another um, um, thing that we struggle with is that the term can easily be misunderstood. Um, the most common use is that um, is for the use of the term is that it's someone who goes against social norms and advocates for change, which isn't necessarily in and of itself bad, but the term has become politicized. And so we use it to talk to someone whose views differ than ours, and we put a label on them to discredit their perspective. So someone's the radical right, or someone is the radical left. Whatever it is, it's not a positive connotation. In those kind of conversations, you don't want to be termed a radical in that type of an agenda. What I've learned that is that when using the term context is everything. Context is everything. To outsiders, the term, as we just discussed, the term is a negative label that's used to discredit someone. It says that they're out of touch, they're beyond reason, you know, we can discount them, we don't really need to pay attention. In fact, they're potentially dangerous. Maybe we need to be protected from them because their ideas and what they're advocating is so radical. And yet, among insiders, those within the group, to have to apply the term to someone else within the group, the term has positive characteristics. It's meant to talk about someone who's willing to go above and beyond for the sake of the cause. And that's a good thing. We admire people like that, who are radical about that. Well, Jesus is a perfect example of the outsider-insider dilemma. I mean, to the Pharisees and religious leaders, Jesus was radical, wasn't he? But for them, that wasn't a good thing. In fact, they considered him dangerous and actually ended up having him killed. 
and that his radicalness was worthy of death. And yet for those who followed Jesus, his words and actions were also radical, weren't they? But for very different reasons. His, he was radical because what he said and what he did brought life and hope and a sense of meaning and purpose to the lives of people. So both, the, the, the same word radical can be applied to Jesus, but have very different connotations depending upon who is using that word. Now, the truth of the matter is, whatever one's point of reference, the life of Jesus was radical. It was different. It was not normal by any stretch of the imagination. So for purposes of this series, radical is to be understood as a commitment to the lifestyle, the words and behaviors observed in Jesus. So let me say that again. As we understand radical in this series, we're, we're talking about a commitment to the lifestyle, the words and behaviors observed in Jesus. So if, you, uh, if you've looked in your worship guide and looked at the outline, you've probably learned that today we're looking at this idea of radical boldness. Now, so if radicals be understood as a commitment to the lifestyle, words, and the behaviors observed in Jesus, then radical boldness is to approach circumstances in life as Jesus would. So how does Jesus approach life? Now, it's interesting, I don't know if you, any of you are art aficionados, but any of you who have looked at some of the medieval art or Renaissance art and depictions of Jesus, quite often they're very meek and mild and humble and quiet. And, and, and you know, here's the thing. Jesus was full of grace and love and mercy, but he was not mild and passive. There was nothing mild and passive about Jesus. When it came to people and the things of God, Jesus was incredibly bold. Bold to the point that the religious leaders perceived him as a threat, and they tried and succeeded in having him killed. So here's the thing. God calls us to that same kind of boldness. God has called us to live a bold, even a dangerous faith. It's not that easy, though, is it? I mean, if we're honest, sometimes you can't just turn on and off the boldness button. And honestly, it's often easier to just keep things to ourselves and not stir the pot. It really is. Just kind of keep, don't look, just keep, keep going, you know, and if you don't notice and you don't have to do anything. And so we just, it's easier just to kind of not notice. I love Pastor Farrell um, one time framed this question. He says, could it be that the church has become a refuge from the world rather than a force in the world? We've become a refuge from the world instead of a force in the world. Well, if there was ever any doubt as to what the Apostle Paul thought about the matter, he put that to rest in his second letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1. He says, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity but a spirit of power, of love, and self-discipline. Well, today we have a great example of living boldly for Jesus in the book of Acts. Well, there's actually quite a few stories about boldness in the book of Acts. One we're going to look at in particular, let me give you a little background so you understand the context. At this point in time, at the very beginning of Acts, Jesus has been crucified, 
He was uh, resurrected, came back to life, and returned to heaven. Um, in Acts 2, we get into Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes and the empowerment. Thousands of people choose to follow Jesus uh, or are following him. The next chapter, Acts chapter 3, was one of my favorite incidents in the whole Bible. Peter and John going into the temple. They encounter a man, says, who had been lame from birth. We know later on at the end of the story that the man's 40 years old. So for 40 years, his entire life, he's been lame, and he's been at that gate begging, um, can I, you know, begging for money. And Peter says, silver and gold I don't have. What I have I give you. He reaches down and pulls up the man, and the man's healed. And it, obviously, it would, as you would imagine, would create a kind of a commotion. Imagine you, you're 40 years old, you've been lame your entire life. Now all of a sudden, for the first time in your life, you're standing up and you can move on your feet. So the guys running around jumping and celebrating and, and, and praising God, well, that kind of draws attention to the other people. So all the people start gathering around to see what all the commotion is. And so Paul, Peter starts talking and sharing Jesus with the crowd of people. Well, gathering crowds made the Romans nervous. So the temple guard comes in and they arrest Peter and John and take them out of there for essentially for disturbing the peace. And they're brought before the leaders, Peter and John are brought before the religious leaders, and they tell them, you need to stop preaching about Jesus. No more. You've got to stop it. And I love uh, their, their answer is like, hmm, listen to you, listen to God. Uh, yeah. Um, and in fact, Peter's response was he specifically said, we can't help speaking about what we've seen and heard. We can't help. This is our experience. This is what we know. This is what we've lived. We can't help but talk about that. Great things were happening. Just, just a lot of things were happening. Miracles were occurring, and thousands were putting their faith in Jesus. And then as we continue reading in Acts, <clears throat> it literally says that the high priests and the other religious leaders became jealous of the attention that Peter and John and the apostles were getting. And so they arrested them again and put them in jail. And then in Acts chapter 5, we discover, um, we see this really cool incident where it says, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. And the angel said, go stand in the temple courts and tell the people all about this new life. So what do you think the apostles did? You know, they didn't say, hey, let's go home, get some sleep, and meet in the morning. They didn't, they didn't say that. They, they, it actually said, the next verse says, at daybreak they entered the temple courts. Okay, so they're in prison. It's night. They're let out during the night. They don't even go home to change clothes, take a shower, you know, check the email. They went straight, go back to the temple, and at daybreak they're there to start teaching again. So what do you think happens next? They get arrested again. Third time now. And we're only talking about a short period of time, like within a few days here. Third time they're arrested. And then Acts 5, verse 27, um, it tells us, actually says this. You can follow along in your screen here. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Because they said that it's the religious leaders who caused him to be put to death. So it was not good PR. So Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. Now that sounds really bold, isn't it? And it is bold. 
Remember, remember that these are the very same religious leaders who just a couple months earlier put Jesus to death. Same guys. Peter and John, all the other apostles know this. They know that their very lives are hanging by a thread. All it would take would be them to this group, whoever, whether it's one or a small group, to decide, all right, we're done with you, you're out of here, and their lives would be over. And in fact, that actually was a attempt. Some of the religious leaders were furious, and some of them within the group actually sought to said, we need to put them to death. We need to get rid of this. Fortunately, cooler minds prevailed. Um, And instead of having them put to death, it said that they had the apostles flogged. Literally says, and then they, after they were flogged, then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So, um, what's interesting, and I didn't realize this actually until I was working on this, this part of the sermon, um, the idea of flog or flogging, it's mentioned 20 times. There's 20 instances where it's used or referenced um, in the Bible. And it's usually talked about flogging. It's not actually a story or an incident of flogging. Um, what's also interesting, there is no record of the manner in which floggings were to be administered in the Bible. There's nothing in there that says, here's what it looked like, except we do know that it was carried out usually with a whip or a rod, a long rod of some sort. Um, And we know from Deuteronomy 25 that the number of lashes was to be appropriate to the crime, but never should it exceed 40. So they always, in in, uh, uh, the Talmud and other rabbinic literature, they always went um, to 39 just in case they lost count, you know, they didn't exceed the 40 limit. So the 39 was the max. We know that, but that's it. We don't know what the scale was. You know, what offense? All right, this is five, this is 10. We don't know. We don't hear anything about that, uh, what that looked like. We also know that flogging was a means of correction. It was meant to be like as as a substitute to capital punishment. All right, so you're right, you're bad. And, and even it was used sometimes without having, uh, without even going to trial. Sometimes you were accused. And so without it actually being, having a verdict, just say, listen, you know, we're not sure what the evidence is here, but we're just going to flog you and move on. You know, and so you took it and move on. It's kind of the way it went. Flogging was also done publicly as a deterrent to others. So it was meant to embarrass and shame the individual but it's also meant to the others who are watching because it was done in a town square or other places as a deterrent that you better mind your P's and Q's as you're going through life here. So the apostles had now been arrested multiple times. They've been beaten and flogged and were told to not talk about Jesus anymore. What would you do if you were one of the 12? What would be your reaction at this point in time? I mean, for some of us, we'd probably be pretty fearful. It's like, dudes, we've pushed this as far as it can go. The next time we do this, it's, I mean, this is three times we've been beaten. I mean, this is, you know, I don't, do we, you know, do we just go home? Do we shut the whole thing down, move to another town? You know, what do we, you know, that's one response to this. Another response to this kind of response to us might be anger. You know, that we're bent on revenge and, you know, against the whole religious establishment and we're going to figure out how to, you know, plan a coup or we're going to figure out a way to strike back and, you know, exert our dominance over the situation. And the apostles did neither of these. The apostles' response was like jumping out of a perfectly good airplane. 
the response of the apostles was radical. Verse 41 says, The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name, the name of Jesus. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Their goal was to be like Jesus. And it was happening. It was happening. They knew they were becoming more like Jesus because they were becoming treated like Jesus. This is how Jesus was treated. This is, they're treating us because they're associating us with him. Now all of a sudden they realize this is beginning. This is what we want. We want to be like Jesus. And so the fact that they were accused of being like Jesus and treated like Jesus, even though the treatment was bad and harsh, it made them happy because it's what they had hoped for and what they had wanted. <clears throat> If there's one word I think that summarizes the action of Christ's followers in Acts, it's boldness. Within this one account, within this one story, four things that we can observe that should speak to us today. One of them is that when you act with boldness, you stand up and you speak up. To act with boldness means you actually have to do something. It means you actually have to say something. Good intentions, while commendable, aren't enough. We can have all the great intentions in the world, but unless we actually do something, actually we actually say something, we're not acting with boldness. I think we can have bold intentions, but it really doesn't mean anything, do they? Unless something happens. Second thing we can take away from this account is that when you righteously act with boldness, you bring honor to God. Okay. Notice what I'm not saying here. What we're not saying here is acting boldly honors God. Okay. I have a picture for you. This is, some of you may have seen this on my Facebook page. This is a house in our neighborhood. It's down another couple blocks away. Um, Bold? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Righteous boldness? Hardly. I can't imagine their electric bill. Because every one of those things has a motor and lights. I know you can't see it, uh, but on the, see on the tree, the house to the right, there's a, there's in the, there's an American flag there in a tree. Right below, right to the right of that tree in the trunk, there's no other decorations on that house, the yard. But it has the word ditto. Across across the front, so, like oh, that, that's either you clearly you know what you just fight it or you just accept it and live with it. So I don't know. I'm I'm really surprised that HOA let that stay up, but uh, it's it's still there. What's really funny though, on the day all those things are down because the motors throw off and it just looks like this. What is that? What's that material like? This plastic sheeting. It's just all over the whole. Yard, so it's just, still, I can't imagine the extension cords and the power. Just, anyway, a little bit. <laughs> so here, here's the thing. So, so just because you're bold doesn't necessarily mean that that's what we're talking about here. I mean, some people are bold because, that, and I think that's what we're, when, when, it, when we're talking about here about godly boldness or righteous boldness, 
A couple things here, I think, to help us. Who's the target of your boldness? Are, are, you, are you doing what you're doing? Are you being bold for yourself, for your own credit, or your own benefit, or are you doing it on behalf of someone else or some other cause or something else? So who's the target of your boldness? And even then, what's your motivation? Your motivation should be love. You should be motivated to, you should be willing to step out because you care about the well-being of other people. That, when that happens, and then I can think we can say, well, look, I say this is righteous boldness. Because that's what Jesus, Jesus never did anything to draw attention to himself. He was never bold to do something or advocate for his own desires or wants. His only boldness, which was extensive, was always for other people. It was always to speak up for the hurting, for those who were the poor, the, the suffering, the, those who were at the lower rungs of society, those for whom, for whom Jesus was bold. Another takeaway we can get from this story is that when you act with boldness, you see and experience the power of God. A couple things to point out here. The apostles had been given a very specific direction from the angel to go back to the temple. Okay, so just because you have a dream or a whim, even if it may even qualify as godly because it's for someone else, it doesn't necessarily mean it's the right thing to do. And sometimes we need uh, to work it out. Sometimes it's about timing. Sometimes it's a matter that needs to be shaped a little bit. So the idea here of being bold is not impulsive. It's not this rash decision and say, hey, I'm just being bold for God. Well, no, you were being foolish. Um, you didn't consider, you didn't think it through. You did. So, uh, so just understand, I'm qualifying that way. But also experiencing the power of God doesn't mean that we won't face adversity. All right? They follow, I mean, they had a direct instruction from the angel to go and teach, which led immediately to their being flogged and imprisoned. They experienced a miracle, and they still got beaten and flogged. And the last takeaway for me is that when you act with boldness, you face adversity with joy. Now, this one's a little tougher. Adversity and joy are two words you usually don't put together in the same sentence. So why did they rejoice? And it tells us there, in the verses, they rejoiced because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name, for, the, for Jesus. Notice it says, worthy of suffering disgrace. It doesn't say that they were worthy of suffering pain. They were worthy of, of suffering. Um, they were worthy of suffering disgrace. Other translations, um, like the um, King James Version, a few other translations, they, they use the word dishonor. They were dishonored for the name of Jesus. Another word to use is shame. They faced shame for the name. For that. So it had nothing to do with the beating. It was how it was perceived from the public. It was the public humiliation of what happened to them that was being referenced there. Now, remember, flogging is public. It was never done in you know, the, the confines of the prison or jail. It was done in public. And its intent was to humiliate and shame a person as much as it was to punish them. And these men had lived with Jesus for three years. And they had given up everything to follow him. Literally, some of them at the very beginning, Jesus said, follow me. And it says they dropped what they were doing and they followed him 
never to return to what it was they were doing. They gave up everything to follow Jesus, to be like Jesus. That was the intent of following him. The entirety of their lives was about carrying out the mission given to them by Jesus. To be treated poorly by religious leaders was validation. They were perceived as followers of Jesus. And to be associated with Jesus was everything they wanted. Think about that. The only thing they wanted to do was be associated with Jesus. They wanted to be like him. Now remember, Peter is among this group, and one of the key leaders just two months prior denied he even knew Jesus. Think about the transformation that he's going through, what the Holy Spirit has done in his own life. Now, honestly, we have to acknowledge the fact that boldness is often a function of personality. It is. Some of us are just naturally bold. Some of us are just naturally not bold. So whether you consider yourself a bold person or not, to what degree are you associated with Jesus? So, and my challenge would be, my, my question would be to each of us is what's one thing you can do to move the boldness needle just one bit, one notch in your life? So as you are contemplating that in your life, a couple things to think about. I think one is that boldness begins with a decision. So you need to think about what's happening in my world, what's happening in my family, with my friends, my neighbors, my coworkers, what's happening at school. Who needs Jesus? And then make a decision. Not so much you're targeting an individual, unless you felt led by the Holy Spirit that that's someone you should be praying for, but you need to decide, I'm going to make myself available for God to use me for them. A decision that you're going to allow God to use you. Second thing you need to keep in mind is that boldness comes with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. You can't force things, and you shouldn't try to do so. I, uh, when I was going through uh, grad school, seminary, and um, on weekends I did residential window washing, just a way to make money to help pay the bills and stuff. And it's actually kind of a cool because I can control my schedule and things. But uh, at the same time, this one uh, term, I was actually I took a, taking a course on evangelism, and um, one of the assignments for the course was that you have to share Jesus with somebody and then write up that experience as, you know, as, as, and submit it as part of an assignment. Well, I, that was not my comfort zone. That was just to be able to engage that. And it's funny, when you're living in student housing and living at, going to grad school or seminary, you're not surrounded by a lot of Christians. You're not like you have a lot of opportunity to talk to non-Christians. And so basically it came down to the Saturday before the paper was due on Monday. And... Um, so I'm watching one of the windows, and I tried to start a conversation with the woman there who owned the house, and it was a disaster. It just was. It wasn't natural. You know, I forced it, and it just, I clearly wasn't full of the Holy Spirit. I was feeling guilty for procrastinating with, for the assignment and trying to force an issue, and I have no idea what the poor woman thought. Um, We've got to remember that the apostles went back to the temple to teach because they had been given specific direction by God, the angel, to do so. 
So pray and ask God to show you how and who and when, and he will. I'm confident of that. Thirdly, remember that boldness intensifies as we spend time with Jesus and grow in our understanding of who he is and how he has called us to live. The apostles were bold for Jesus because they had spent time with Jesus. They shared about the Jesus they knew. It wasn't a theoretical conversation for them. It was personal. And the same should be true for us as well. We can't expect to share Jesus if we don't have Jesus in us. Lastly, boldness grows as we see and experience the power of God at work in our lives. When you see God work in your life, you can't help but have greater confidence that he will do so again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am uh, very grateful for this day and, uh, and for this series we're talking about radical and uh, being radical for Jesus. And in this, today, in this context today is about being radical in our boldness for Jesus. And uh, Lord, each of us have people in our lives who need you, who need to know about you. And I pray, Lord God, that, uh, that you would put those people in our hearts, that as we're going through our days, that they would come to mind, and that would be a trigger for us to pray for them, and that your Holy Spirit would, would work and move in their life. And then as opportunities arose, or that we would be bold, and we would transition conversations about the news and weather to spiritual things do you think about God do you do you go to church what is God like in your life and we begin to have those conversations and let me tell you about my life and what God has done for me and Lord may those conversations happen naturally for us Lord may we see people as you see them and um, Lord you notice very quickly if people are lost and without you May we see that as well. And may we have compassion and, Lord, even a sense of passion that they come to know Jesus as well. Father, help us to be more like Jesus. Help us to care enough that we would step out of our comfort zones to say things, to do things when it's appropriate, that you would be honored and that you would be glorified in all that we would say and do. So, Father, we commit ourselves to these purposes and to your ends, and we thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.